everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. On this episode, I sat down with Persia Garland Moen. Uh, we have a few mutual friends, and uh, she was recommended to me, and she has a really interesting story. She's been involved um, in this kind of work, this plant medicine work, uh, shamanism for, for quite a long time. And she has a really fascinating story. So it was really a pleasure for me to sit down with her, have her share about her story, about her, uh, the work that she's done. She, I think started, uh, really from a really young age where she felt a, a real call to go deeper into this work. Um, she ended up studying a lot of Tibetan Buddhism and then eventually came down and learned from ayahuasca, uh, from the, the Kerdo traditions here in the, the Peruvian Andes. So it was really interesting. She has a lot to share, a lot of experience with different traditions, uh, really humble and, and uh, really beautiful presence. Um, I think probably the first hour or so of the conversation was, was her background, and then the, the next uh, hour two and three we went into um, just a lot of her wisdom. So I think you all will enjoyed this conversation. Uh, it was a pleasure for me. And um, and I think that's it for the intro. As always, if you're able to help to support this podcast, that's a really big help. Um, Patreon is a really good option. It's a subscription service for as little as a dollar a month. You can sign up. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different added benefits, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As, um, I like that idea because it's very much working on this idea of reciprocity. So if you feel like you're gaining something from this podcast, from these episodes, and you have that ability to give back, that's really appreciated. This podcast is really uh, able to happen based on the support of, of, uh, of people who are able to give back. So to all of the people who have done that, to all of the patrons, thank you very much. I, as always, I, I very much appreciate your support. And if you are able to do that, that's greatly appreciated. Um, if you're not able to do that, as always, if you're watching on the YouTube channel, if you're able to hit the subscribe button, turn on the notification bell, like the video, um, leave any questions or comments in the comment section, that really helps with the uh, magical and mystical algorithms to get the show out to a bigger audience. If you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, uh, following or subscribing to the show, leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's a really big help. And also with Spotify now, there's the ability to, to rate the show as well. Um, so I think that's pretty much it. Um, after this, I have a woman coming on, Linda. Uh, I haven't done that interview yet, uh, but she's really seems very fascinating. She was also recommended to me by my friend Kylia Taylor, who I interviewed in one of the previous episodes. Um, <clears throat> she's been doing this work for a long time, studied in many different traditions. So that should be a really fascinating conversation. Um, my colleague, Marav Artsy, and myself were continuing to run dietas, so that's a really amazing opportunity if you're interested in this work and you'd like to go deeper. Predominantly, we're working with uh, tobacco and tree barks, training in the, the lineages that we've been trained in. Probably when this is released, um, I will probably 
be in Ireland or finished in Ireland, um, and that workshop is actually sold out. But uh, the the following month after that, in June, will be in Israel. I believe there's still a couple spots left for those workshops. And then the following month in July, we'll be in New York, in upstate New York in the United States. Uh, and I believe there's also a couple spots open for that too. So if you'd like more information about that, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org and also Marav's site at tobaccodiets.com. Uh, I'll put a link to those in the show notes. So I think that's it. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Persia. All right, great. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, as we were talking a little bit before we, we started recording, um, I think we actually have a few mutual friends. Uh, I think you work with uh, my friend Todd Rotundi. Mm-hmm. And then I think you also know Felix and Safa, who who work uh, in the Sacred Valley of Peru. Um, so maybe just to begin, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got interested in this work, uh, what what kind of led you to to, to finding this path you're on. Well, um, yeah. So um, I actually saw your interviews with Felix and Safa and they were fantastic. I loved seeing them on. And, uh, that's why my husband reached out to you. Um, I was getting a few other uh, podcast invites and I like to stay off the radar. <laughs> I'm one of those folks. And, um, my husband's kind of always pushing against that. Um, and then I think spirit gave me this really strong message that it was greedy not to share um, and, and a little bit vain. So I pushed myself past that. <laughs> um, generally when I share, I share quite detailed direct experiences. Um, I don't know how else to do it except to do that. And so I've never really done that in a public way before other than, you know, local teaching of small groups. Um, so I, uh, There are some interesting stories about what brought me to the Paco and Dino lineage. Um, I, it started pretty early in my life. Um, some unique experiences, uh, that eventually made it very clear. I needed to find teachers and I was having um, to just dive right in, I was having um, journeys in lucid dreams um, in childhood. I was journeying into the underworld of some of my grandparents and family members. And um, I was <laughs> I was also um, having past life memories, um, some kind of steady stream of practices that I had done. Um, and I, I wasn't brought up in a traditional Judeo-Christian family either. My, my parents, um, were part of a commune, um, and they were practicing, um, 
we had a guru from a Tantra yoga lineage. Um, tantra meaning mystical, not the way most Westerners use the word Tantra, um, but um, yoking into self-realization. Um, when I was just a toddler, so we were initiated very early in that lineage. And um, my parents were a big part of the uh, early boomers who were the counterculture counter generation. Um, they were doing that thing and they were feeling a deep rejection of the world. They were carrying a lot of um, uh, you know, tenderness about what they were seeing the world do and a lot of emotion about it and I think some rejection. Um, and uh, being initiated in a community and a Tantra Yoga lineage and also then um, the lineage that we practice had an economic theory called Prout, which was non-hierarchical. It was a, pretty much a socialist theory. So, you know, that's the standard capitalist Judeo-Christian conditioning was very different. That was not really something that I understood. My world was very different, even growing up here in the U.S. Um, and that was probably perfect for me because of sort of what I came in with. And um, I was having memories of another life um, about the age of six. Um, and I needed a safe container. I needed um, to stabilize some of the energies and to know what to do with the heavy stuff that my ancestry was carrying. Um, so I felt very early like I was seeking and trying to figure out where to get some teaching and some guidance um, very, very early on. And uh, about, again, about like the age of six years old, I remembered, I had this, I have this very clear moment of sort of what now I would say was this existential crisis where I understood that I didn't come from here. I had a very clear memory of a, I don't know how else to say it, but a unified field of love light. We didn't have physical form. And I knew that that place was my home. And I remember suddenly being aware of the world outside of me. I don't know. I think it has something to do with the, the developmental stage of the brain around the age of six, where children start recognizing the world outside of them a little bit more. And it seemed like in a very short period of time, I became aware that humanity had things going on and I felt the collective consciousness very deeply at the age of six. And I became aware that there was war. Um, I think I had seen a documentary about MLK Jr. and I saw um, people who were, you know, doing social justice, this, the early civil rights movement. And I, I saw people being sprayed with fire hoses by police officers and beaten at the age of six. So I saw this level of violence and racism 
I realized there was homelessness and starvation. And I was in shock. Like I remember the exact moment I was contemplating in my little six-year-old mind, contemplating these things. And I was like, why doesn't humanity know that they're love? That that's their true identity. And um, I don't really know how to find the words to explain how deeply that shocked me. And I, I had this big field in front of my house where there was a old abandoned school building. And I went and I laid down in the field um, flat on my back. And I, I looked up to the sky and I said, I want to go back home. They don't know that they're love. I don't understand it here. And I want to go back. Please come and get me and bring me home. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've worked with a lot of people who kind of have similar feelings um, in my client work and have talked about that energy. But it became very clear to me that I needed um, to find a way to f fill in the gap between this frequency that was familiar with me and then the contrast to what I was witnessing here. Um, it's been a lifelong journey of intense initiation to come back to a space where I could really find a container and stabilize um, the purpose uh, of being here. Um, so my focus has been pretty steady um, since very young and I was, I was seeking. Um, and I, and I knew who I was and I didn't know what to do with it. I felt really, really lost for a long time. Um, I also was having, uh, these experiences around the same age on a number of occasions where I know this sounds strange. I don't know what else, what words to use or what words I was using in my six-year-old mind, but I was contemplating existence, sitting out on my back porch, staring into the, into nature. And I would have these like, just in a flash, I would go into this void and I didn't know what it was called, but when I would come back to the phenomenal world, I would be really shooken up and anxious and I would run to my mother and find her and say, mom, I don't, I didn't exist. You didn't exist. My family was gone. The house was gone. There was nothing there. And I was going into this, um, this space that I think is a steady stream from a meditation practice. And I didn't learn that until maybe 20 years later when I was, I think I was listening to, um, what's his name? I can't remember, a meditation teacher. And he was talking about shunyata. And um, I realized that there was a continuation of a practice from another lifetime. So I started seeking for some way to um, find good teachers. And for a long time, I didn't know um, really what direction to take. Even with, the, uh, we left the yoga practice um, and the, the gurus 
from India who were some of the most loving people I had ever met. We left um, and kind of our family kind of went into a, a deep struggle. Um, my parents were really strong seers, but they were both really in pain. And uh, I think, you know, in terms of adverse childhood experiences, I probably could check off nearly everyone on the list. It wasn't like a lot of people think when I tell this story about the counterculture and the spiritual energy in my family, there was a lot of love, but people were suffering. And um, I started to become very, very sick. And I did everything to try to heal my body with natural medicine and Western medicine and nothing was working. Um, so I, I realized that I needed to find a spiritual path to heal on a soul level and that not only my, would I find my own healing, but that my purpose in the world would be connected to what I learned through my own healing. I just figured that much out. And I, uh, I started exploring a little bit. I, I started learning a little bit about the Buddhist path um, in my late teens. And that's really when the upper world journeys started happening. Um, and I would say gurus from the yoga lineages of, of um, self-realization and also Tibetan teachers um, started showing up in lucid dreams um, very, very quickly. Some doorways started opening at that time. I wasn't using plant medicine, <laughs> but the stuff just started happening naturally. Um, I really didn't feel like, you know, going to grad school or doing anything in like the consensual reality made any sense for me at all that just that world confused me very much and it was it just wasn't home to me um somebody kind of uh suggested that i ask directly um for some guidance about who i was and what my path was and that i expect an answer to come and after uh this woman suggested that I was watching this documentary. It's so funny now. I was seeing this rain, uh, this tribe in the rainforest in Peru. And in the documentary, they were speaking very clearly about the fact that everything in the natural world was made of light and that we could always communicate with that light. And that was the that was home to my heart when I heard those words. It was like the the strongest familiarity inside of me and the only thing that really made sense. And <laughs> I was so clueless that shamanism was something that you could access. You know, in terms of teachers, I was like, I don't I don't know the language uh, that they speak. I don't know how to how to get to these teachers, but this really is what's home to me. And, and I kind of felt like it was such a strong pull and yet I, I felt a little defeated and I kind of just dropped it and let it go for a little bit. 
because um, I didn't know how to make that happen. And soon after that, I was at this turning point where I had made some decisions to stop playing some of the roles of rescuer that I was really addicted to, and I kind of let go of some relationships. And because I had made that choice, um, I became more accessible to the next stage of my journey. And it wasn't going to be possible until I personally made that choice. It was something that I had to do on my own. Um, and through a lot of suffering, um, I finally, you know, took a stand a little bit, just the beginning of that, and um, got a little bit more honest uh, that I needed to move forward. And when that happened, um, a lucid dream came. I'd had animal spirit dreams throughout my whole childhood, but in this particular dream, it was a repetitive dream, and all my all my lucid dreams, by the way, in case people um, are thinking in you know technical teachings about lucid dreaming aren't always connected to healing and initiation, but um, some people are just exploring and playing around or trying to do powerful things. My lucid dreams are only about the healing path, um, strictly, and the path of initiation. Um, and so I was having this repetitive dream that I was in the underworld of my, of a family member and there were threatening energies, um, maybe some entities and spirits that, um, I wanted to protect my family from. And I would always in the stream, I would go into battle mode. Like I have to be the protector of my family. And even though I was the youngest child, this was just how I perceived it. And I would try to rescue everyone. And I would try to fight off these heavy energies in the underworld. And I would always be defeated. Uh, and, and, you know, even using assertion, it wouldn't work. Just I was going through, you know, the motions of what you're supposed to do in terms of technique, but it wasn't like a stance I was carrying inside of me. So it didn't really hold much weight. And uh, so that repetitive dream was playing out. But in this moment, something, some kind of new awareness came in and I realized that this wasn't my battle. It didn't belong to me. And I opened the door and I stepped outside the house and I felt this huge weight lift and I was taking in this deep breath and expansiveness of being in the light and surrounded by the trees and the earth. The sun was shining really brightly and I was breathing it all in and feeling this sense of freedom. And I looked up and this baby bald eagle was darting down from the heavens and I just cupped my hands automatically and it fell right into my hands. And it had some chakras that were leaking life force. 
um, which is where the illness in my body was really connected in, in my soul. Um, there was a lot of life force being lost. And uh, this eagle transmitted a, mes a message uh, right into me. It didn't speak, but it just in psychically transmitted these words. It looked right into my eyes. And this little baby bald eagle was very serious. Um, and it said, uh, you have nothing else to do but to heal me and bring me into my full power. And I was like, this is serious business. Of, of course. Yes. Okay. I'll do it. And um, I, I agreed and I didn't have any idea what was about to happen, but um, Kripalu Yoga Center was very close to the area that I lived uh, on the foothills of the Berkshires um, here in New England. And there was a class being taught um, in the shamanic path. And somebody called me up and uh, from my family who said, you know, this shamanic thing that you mentioned and this, this eagle initiation that's calling you there's somebody you know with this course description at Kripalu uh, yoga center who's teaching a you know a peruvian shamanic path and um it it has this teaching in the final direction about the eagle and i think you should sign up <laughs> and i knew nothing about this teacher um he's a, a medical anthropologist and um he, uh, at this point, has uh, been working with the Paco Andino lineage for well over 40 years, I believe. Um, this was 16 years ago. And he uh, has published a lot of books. Um, and I, I had no idea who he was. I, I remember calling up Kripalu to sign up for the course immediately. I just dove right in. I was so in shock that you could access you know, shamanic wisdom. Um, I hadn't read any books about it. I didn't have any preconceptions. I just, uh, I read the course description about these four directions and uh, it connected a little bit for me about the, um, the Buddhist teachings that I knew about um, for many years uh, before. And I, I dove right in, um, and then I went on some trips to Peru, and, you know, sometimes the Caro would visit the U.S., or, or we would go to Peru and visit them, and that kind of launched the start of that journey. Um, this teacher really doesn't strictly teach the Caro lineage, the Paco Andino lineage, that is a huge part of it, but he weaves in his background in medical anthropology and um, the yoga path of self-realization and Buddhism. Um, and that really worked for me because those were all three of the lineages that I felt had called me. Um, so I don't just work with one lineage. 
Um, I certainly could be more steeped in the Caro Paco Andino wisdom. I spent two years of study with that teacher um, doing a foundational program and everything blasted open after I started getting the, the transmissions of the rights there at that time, there were nine transmissions that um, the mountain lineage, the Paco Andino lineage was transmitting to people. And as um, after I left the first training um, of this two year study, uh, this another lucid dream happened. And um, this really solidified that I had found the right teachers. Um, and I, my commitment, my commitment was huge at that time. It was the only thing that mattered to me in the past. I had thought I would become a Buddhist nun. Um, I took that seriously for a while and then it didn't feel quite right. Um, I felt like I still needed to, uh, I, I didn't want to live in a Sangha separated from the world. Um, but uh, I had this dream right after we began and we had received just some foundational transmissions. Um, we weren't yet considered to be, uh, it was just very early stage in the beginning of the path um, where you're not a shaman yet. Um, but you're invited to the lineage. And right after those initiations happened, I went home and I very quickly had this lucid dream where I don't want to get too explicit, but I was murdered in the dream. It started off a little bit, um, intense. Um, and there was, uh, I won't get into the description of it because I think it might not be everybody's <laughs> cup of tea, but I was murdered and my, I woke up crying after I was murdered and I felt the death of all my memories, all my known relationships and, and, my dreams and, you know, path forward, my visions for the future, everything just disappeared. And there was this emptiness that was so aching and filled with grief and loss. I woke up, I think it was about three o'clock in the morning, and I just bawled my eyes out for about 45 minutes after having this death archetype come teach me. And, um, after I fell back asleep, um, I didn't know his name at the time, but there was a Carol elder, uh, and this was 2006. And I believe he, I found out a few months later who he was and that he had actually died in 2004. And he was in the spirit realm and he was chanting in Quechua. Um, I won't do my really bad 
um, rendition of that because I, I, I only know a little bit of Quechua. <laughs> but um, he was chanting, and I saw this childlike face, beautiful smile, these glowing eyes, and this sweet, soft, loving energy. Um, and after he did this chant, he blew um, his breath. through time and space. And it, my mesa, we were just beginning to build our medicine bundles. Uh, it was in my bed with me, just above my head. And his breath went into my mesa. And from my mesa, it went into the crown of my head. And um, it started to vibrate down my pranic tube <laughs> the central line of this empty space inside of me. And I started shaking. It trembles uh, as his breath went all the way down to the root. And, um, and then he would start giggling. And uh, he said, he was very playful and kept everything very light. And he said, um, just like in quantum physics, um, everything that light can do is our true nature. This is what we can do and what they're discovering. We will also discover about our true nature. Um, and then he started talking about the gifts that came with the transmissions, uh, specific, um, light activations and abilities and then he would giggle more and um he visited for four nights and did the same thing again and again um i think it was essential that i had that death archetype experience and and that i said goodbye in order for him to be able to access me uh, I had to let go of um, a certain level of personhood and, and conditioning in order to be free enough for him to come in. And on the final night, um, the fourth night of this trembling experience and listening to his prayers and, and his breath entering, um, the, the final night he told me that, um, that I needed to learn how to give the transmissions. Um, and the, this in 2006, there was just an, an invitation from the teacher that I was working with that they wanted to start to share these transmissions in a more widespread way with the public, which had never been done before. And there was a lot of controversy about that. And today, not everybody agrees with it. Um, and I felt like it was controversial, too. I felt like an incredible humbleness and integrity about holding um, these transmissions. And I felt a little bit weird about the idea of taking that training so that I could also teach them. I, I don't know if I was in full agreement with it, but um, this elder I found out later was Dom um, Manuel Quispe. Um the, the person visiting who had died in 2004, two years earlier. Um, 
he died in his 90s and he was um, an alto mosaic um, of the later stages. Um, so his, his initiation level was very high and the people who were teaching me were uh, from the Pacuanino lineage, from the Keros village, um, from Mount Asangate. They were his students. Um, and they loved him very deeply. Um, when I shared that story with uh, Don Pablo, um, he, he had tears well up in his eyes and he told me that the children were no longer following in their footsteps and becoming students of the medicine. And they were moving to the cities. Um, and there was a lot of sorrow and grief. And um, that was one of the reasons they made the choice to share it was to preserve it. Uh, he was very clear about that, but I don't think that there's consensus on that. Um, so he was also very touched and tender about the fact that uh, I told him that I wanted to do everything in my power to really hold this teaching with the utmost love and respect. Um, and he wept. Um I think it's a very challenging time, but they knew this time of upheaval was coming. And when I began working with ayahuasca in 2006, there's a particular understanding that I have about this moment in time, the prophecies that are carried by this particular lineage and many lineages all coming to a head. And Ayahuasca gave me a very clear message that I now try to translate for other people to help them initiate. Um, not so much the, you know, the full nine transmissions, but there's some one particular teaching at this moment in time that I've gotten a lot of clarity about that I, I hope to talk more about today. Um, there's a lot that I have to say about that. And, and I think that I'm being pushed to share that message. So the, that's how I got started was, <laughs> um, and found my way here. So, um, yeah. So when you, so you, you, you took this course mm -hmm. and, and that really, as you said, opened you up to a lot of things and these transmissions started coming through, uh, at that point, did you feel the call to, to go to Peru and, and begin working directly with these people? And you also mentioned that you, you began working with ayahuasca as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, I went to Peru very quickly after um, Dama Malkispe came in the lucid dream and had given me, I, I later found out that those four nights of transmission were actually the four final initiation rites um, in the lineage. Uh, at that time, what I knew was that there were nine transmissions. I think there are more now. Um, but he had given me the final four. Um, and when I received... Um, 
the training to transmit the rights to others, uh, they did blow into the top of our head a few months later when we were taught how to do this. Uh, that's exactly what we did. We used our breath on the crown chakra and we were to blow down the central line all the way until we felt it reach the root. And that's exactly what uh, he had done in the dream time. So that was pretty clear that um, I was, you know, following the thread that I needed to follow. Uh, right after that dream, yeah, my commitment was huge. I dove in all the way and um, did go to Peru. Oh, my, uh, oh no. Okay, how do I get back to the screen? You still have the uh, video? Because my video just went out. Yeah, yeah, I'm still with you. I can see you. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, a message just popped in. Let me see if I can figure out how to get my screen back. Hmm. There we go. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. Um, so I did make a trip really, really soon after that to Peru, and um, we went to Cusco. And, um, and the Sacred Valley, and I did not go to the jungle uh, to work with the Shipibo, but um, there was an elder who had been working with ayahuasca for probably close to 40 years, and um, he met us in the Sacred Valley. Um, and I sat down. Uh, actually, I would like to say, um, before I worked with ayahuasca and took this trip in preparation for the journey, I didn't want to make a like gringo, arrogant decision to work with such a pow powerful medicine without first introducing myself to the medicine and asking very humbly if it was one of my allies. So once again, like the, uh, a direct experience occurred even before I ingested the medicine. This was a couple months before the trip. I, um, I did this meditation and, and opened my light body and I was just about to fall asleep. And I, um, I had very little knowledge at the time of ayahuasca. Um, I knew I had read some a little bit of uh, stories and background about it and knew that it could do soul retrievals and, you know, great deep healings, but, um, and help people reveal gifts. But I didn't really know what to ask of the plant, but I wanted to know if we should work together. So I opened my light body and um, I tracked for the light body of the plant and, um, and then I felt its presence and I made a prayer and a request to the plant, um, asking it if it was one of my teachers and to let me know. And then, um, you know, at the time I had this little nagging issue, um, and I was kind of curious to see if the plant could help me uncover and heal, uh, an issue that I was working with. 
about, um, uh, you know, my mother was a therapist, so I knew certain things about trauma states. And I had this weird, very particular type of trauma that people usually experience from war. And it was like this exaggerated fear response, um, like a sudden, uh, it's just a sudden fear that would um, cause you to jump a little. I don't know how else to describe it. It was chronic and it, it would just catch me off guard. It's a particular type of PTSD and it didn't relate to anything. I didn't know where it had come from. Uh, and I was a little bit curious about it. So in addition to asking if it would, if ayahuasca would let me know, um, if I was to work with it, I asked if it could do something to help me with that issue. And I fell asleep after merging with the consciousness of ayahuasca through this meditation and, and request. Um, and then a lucid dream occurred. Um, and I was in a past life. Um, I was in a concentration camp and I was like a four-year-old, maybe a, at most four-year-old little boy. Um, and again, I don't know how much detail to go into, but there was a horrific death um, that took place uh, with myself and a group of people. Um, and uh, very specific historical details that were things that I'd never heard of before that I had to look into after this dream took place. Um, and I... Uh, after I believe right after the little boy died in this vessel, this body, um, I walked in uh, to the scene and I reached out my hand to him and he opened to me. And so I picked him up and I held him in my arms and his fight or flight was stuck in the on position and it was in my nervous system as well. So I held him and I told him, uh, you're safe now. You're in the arms of the Divine Mother and um, you're, you're held in peace. You're safe. You're safe, sweet one. And I felt him go, <sighs> and like the fight or flight switch got shut off. And, um, and then I took him with me, and uh, that's all I can remember about the dream. But when I woke up, um, I, I never had the sudden um, startle reflex on anymore. It was completely healed. Um, uh, so I realized that uh, ayahuasca had helped me. And... Um, so I decided to work with her um, and went on the journey uh, to the Sacred Valley. Um, my, my ayahuasca journey itself, um, when we did take the medicine, I, I was looking at the um, ayahuasca and I, I was trying to figure out my intention kind of last minute. And I was looking at him and I thought, oh, 
my gosh, this man goes into the underworld of, you know, crowds of people night after night for all these years, seeing the greatest potential for human confusion and suffering. And he's walking in that world with the utmost stillness, peace, compassion. And um, I, I don't know if it's good to share this or not. In, um, I ask really big questions. And, um, and I don't want to encourage anyone to do that because you have to know what you're asking. But uh, I realized that if I'm going to really be of service to people in this path, not just do my own healing, but have something to offer, that I would not have anything to offer if I couldn't also do what that medicine man was doing. Um, you know, to really be legitimate and being able to hold the medicine, I needed to not have a rejection of uh, this archetype of death in this space of the underworld. So um, I asked for the ayahuasca to do that with me. The journey itself was um, pretty gentle that night, but the integration when I got home was actually really intense. That was the hard part. Um and everything that I learned from ayahuasca is, has so much to do with the work that I do with my clients now and what I'm teaching them. Um, and it's, it's uh, really the most important gift um, to cross this threshold and uh, come back to the real landscape of our source um, through this journey. And it's, it's quite painful and um, it requires a lot of courage and, and patience. So I had immense resistance come up and I, uh, after the journey, but during that night that we worked with the medicine, I had a beautiful vision. I, I don't know how to explain this, but I would always fall asleep for, you know, roughly an hour right after taking the medicine. I think that's probably, to me, I think that's unheard of that somebody would, you know, drink it. I would start feeling activations of certain light going off in regions of my brain. And, and then I would just get really sleepy. And, but I woke up and, um, the visions were activated and I was moving through a rainbow world and there were many different suns, cycles of suns that were rising and setting um, and a lot of birds, hummingbirds, rainbow hummingbirds um, in this rainbow world that I was moving through and it, it was... Um, it was beautiful and gentle. And at the end of that vision, um, my, some part of my energy body disengaged from my physical body and went up into the cosmos. Um, 
and a wind came and passed uh, through my energy body and I dissolved and, and um, just dissolved into the space. Um, the whole thing was very peaceful. Um, but uh, when I when I came back from, it was about a month journey uh, down there. Um, when I came back to the U.S., I was in JFK Airport. <laughs> and I uh, was having a really hard time integrating. Um, I was seeing everybody's underworld immediately. And I just felt this... Um, maybe this consensual reality of um, low-level trauma existing in everyone. And I, I just had to, like, hide out for a long time <laughs> um, during my integration process. Uh, I started to feel like Everything that I had held really tightly for a sense of um, integration, for a sense of being whole and healthy, it was all, you know, I was doing yoga a few hours, like two or three hours a day. I was doing all of these things. And again, I was still trying to heal my body. Um... So I really wanted to, you know, try to create some strength and, and help my immune system. And um, I, I couldn't do anything because it suddenly felt like everything I was doing was trying to stop me from feeling pain. It was trying, I was trying to um, use everything. I would get into really exalted states doing yoga. And... Everything just kind of felt like it was slipping away. <laughs> I couldn't grip onto anything, and I was having a really hard time integrating. Um, so that process was a lot more intense than the initial um, time that I had worked with the medicine. Um, I, I was moving through a dark night of the soul. And, um, you know, decomposing <laughs> and, um, and so much resistance came up. Um, I did not want to feel certain states of vulnerability and pain. And, um, I didn't even know that I was resistant. I just felt, uh, like, I couldn't make sense of what was going on. Um, my field of perception was very wide open. Um, I am very sensitive to plant medicines, and they do have a profound effect on me. Um, as I experienced with other medicines I have, I have done since then. And I got to this point after 
you know, maybe about nine months of uh, being like a monk in a cave <laughs> and trying to figure out what was going on. And I was on my knees. I had been calling my colleagues and friends and they were like, you're, you're too intense. You know, I think a lot of them had really been trained in like the law of attraction. Um, they, they just had a different mindset and they were like, the purpose is to focus on the positive and to feel good and to celebrate life. And I was like, I have to shed what's a lie. You don't understand. I have to let go of what's untrue. It's calling me and I can't say no. I have to do it. And they were like, you're too intense. Stop doing this, you know. And um, nobody understood, at least the people I was calling out to um, amongst my peers. And um, they kept saying, you know, you can stop it. And I, uh, I couldn't do that and be honest. So, um, I, I was on my knees and I remember just saying like, what do I do? And I heard this voice inside of me say, <laughs> you have two choices. You can believe that you're unhinged and just, you know, go through life feeling really um, unable to function or you can make an agreement to love this exactly as it is. And I was so grateful in that moment. I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is what I asked for. Um, and I was really struck by that message. And, um, I was like, this is exactly what I asked for. And I realized that the only thing that was in my way was my own resistance and that I had no idea how to love what level of vulnerability I was experiencing. Um, and that I really uh, knew that in that moment, it wasn't necessarily going to be easy making this agreement, but I agreed, uh, to say, okay, I have to actually learn how to love this. Um, and it continued to teach me. I felt like I had ayahuasca in my back pocket pocket permanently. <laughs> um, and she never left. Um, uh, I started very slowly, um, to be present on a much deeper level. And it was still I still have a lot of resistance. It's surprising to me now because I work with initiation and death and dismantling constantly now. And it's so familiar that, you know, it took so long to build this skillfulness and comfort, but now I can be in celebration at the same time as I'm dismantling. 
And, um, at least for me, this death archetype and this process of, um, discrediting the unreal, the conditioned self has just continued to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. <laughs> and there are definitely stages of initiation, um, where you make it through one initiation and um, there has been uh, a great deal of, of dialogue with the light um, and very beautiful states of awareness. Um, but after a time, it gets called again and then it goes to another level. So, uh, I also had some dream visitations um, soon after working with ayahuasca where I, I believe it was actually the Mayan lineage. And I don't, I don't know why in particular um, I didn't have any connection or experience with the Mayans, but um, they came one night on a solstice, I think in, in 2006 um, so I don't remember if it was the summer or winter solstice because it's so long ago now, but, um, they told me that they were keeping a watch on the progress on the, on earth. And when they showed up in this lucid dream, they had physical form, but they were just pure light. And the only reason, um, it actually took me a long time to find out that they were connected to the Mayan, but they shared some words with me um, from their language. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying it right, the Tutsuhil, the Tutsuhil um, language uh, from the people from Lake Atitlan uh, in Guatemala. Um they said that the essence of all of these prophecies, you know, I could say a tiny bit about all of the prophecies. I've heard a little bit and I haven't done rigorous study, but I, um, you know, the Maya, the Inca, the Hopi, um, the Aztec, the Shambhala warriors, um, Numerous lineages, you know, the cycles and epics of time in the yoga lineage have prophecies, the Christian mystics, they're all talking, basically they were saying to me, knowing that I had a little bit of knowledge of all of these prophecies, they communicated that they all essentially had one thing, that they were communicating to humanity, that we were going through a global heart awakening, um, what a lot of people call the return of the divine feminine. And I have a very specific view about that just through direct experience of, in terms of how I understand that. Um, and they, they said that it was their job to return on the next two solstices. They would be back to kind of track the numbers because there was a plan taking place. And the decision about how we would move forward was affected by what they saw and, in the collective 
human consciousness. And so they would be back just for two more visits, two more solstices, and then they wouldn't return. Um, and they told me uh, that the essence of this heart awakening um, essentially was what ayahuasca was teaching me, that we had to let go of the resistance. Um, not just to walk around with uh, some, you know, sentimental sweetness, although that's very good. <laughs> um, that can also just be a personality on the surface. And, and as many of us have discovered, you can get to know somebody beneath the surface and see that that sweetness isn't necessarily all they have going on. It doesn't mean that that's discounted as part of our being, but that the parts that we're rejecting, where there's spaces of vulnerability that we have an immense amount of resistance to, that that is heart awakening. Um, in as much as we've experienced pain that we needed to shut down as children, most of us. Um, that we didn't just lose access to overwhelming states of pain inherited in our lineages. Um, we also lost access to the full capacity to feel and to connect to the unified heart. And so that we have to go back and reclaim and remember, um, which is very much what the plant medicine had taught me. And I needed to find a way to translate that wisdom um, and help others remember. So they said, this is the main purpose of all these prophecies. They're all talking about heart awakening. Um, and they gave me a word from the Mayan language, um, tunun. And, you know, because of, um, it was very foreign to me. I'd never heard the word before. I do, I get words from the Tibetans as well that I've never heard of before when they're giving me initiations in dream time. <laughs> um, and the Mayans were doing that, um, T-Z-U-N-U-N -U -N is how it's spelled. And they said that this word had a frequency that was a code for a heart purification to awaken the heart. They wanted me to work with that frequency, that word. Um, and today, um, that's really the bulk of the work that I'm doing with people um, to create a skillfulness and a sense of nourishment and confidence in um, knowing how to go right into those spaces that have been shut down and pushed away and closed us off um, and caused us to forget the essence of our being. My landscape changed dramatically after I finally integrated the medicine. Um, and I work with people who are just taking their first steps and have so much resistance, but I really feel like 
what I'm doing is recreating what the medicine did for me. Uh, for people who maybe aren't, you know, sure about taking ayahuasca, it's not necessarily um, something everybody's really decided about, although it's spread. I'm really glad that it's spread. Um, and I also know that people work with it for a long time and don't necessarily, you know, some people work with it and they don't necessarily um, heal or go through that heart awakening. So, mu so much resistance is inside of us and I think uh, we need a foundation of teaching to work with it uh, with a really beautiful container. So... Uh, it's really widespread now <laughs> um, and interesting to see. I hear people all the time, for some reason, particularly on the West Coast, who work with the ayahuasca for a while, and then they're like, oh, I'm just going to dive in and be an ayahuascaro. <laughs> um, and they're not going through an initiation with it. And um, so, you know, obviously... Um, there's a, a a lot of range in terms of how it's being held now because of how widespread it is. Um, but I hope people uh, don't miss that opportunity to work with it with the utmost integrity. Um, you 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 said something really really beautiful and really interesting that that you you had this message. Uh, which said, I, I have to let go of what is untrue, mm -hmm. and and also use this idea of, of the unreal. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Can you speak a little bit about that? Because I think that's something that that a lot of people struggle with is this idea of truth, and and I think we also live in a time where there's kind of this sense that maybe nothing is true in an ultimate sense, that everything is relative. And yet, it's uh, there tends to be a thread in a lot of these traditions of this idea of truth, or you know, as you said, like letting go of what is untrue. So, what does that mean to you? Like to let go of, of what is untrue mm -hmm. with within yourself? Yeah. Well, um, it's taken on more and more meaning over time. Uh. I would certainly say, um, for myself, the memory of being in a non-physical unified field had a pretty big, uh, was a pretty big clue. <laughs> um, and even that state has a further stage. Um, but, uh, yeah, this phenomenal world, uh, is a temporary experience, and there's a lot more. Um, I've, I've had experiences beyond it, and memories, and I think that in the work that I do, I see with everybody uh, consistently for 16 years now, um, we inherit perceptions and conditioned, uh, roles 
um, very strong beliefs that uh, we take on to survive. Um, you know, the way that I often talk about this is um, with clients is to explain that there's this there's this moment um, we might not have like a, a very concrete logical memory of this moment a lot of people don't have a lot of childhood memories and just remember feeling very cut off and numb disconnected um, in response to the environment and the messages that they were taking in but the way that I experience it and try to make sense of it with people is that we can't, I know for myself, what I can share from my own witnessing is that we came here as love. It's our, our real identity. And, um, at some moment, an imprint as children, very, very young, is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm constantly reading people's underworld. So I see the particular experiences they had and the relationships before I meet people. <laughs> um, I track their light body. Um, so I'm really translating this again through my, just what I know and have seen. But a message is transmitted. You know, children are in Delta Theta brain waves. And um, they are not in a separation consciousness. They do not miss a beat um, in terms of picking up on what's going on in their environment on a deeper level. Um, I don't. I don't know that everybody remembers those states, but. I don't think it's possible for us even to learn language without having been incredibly empathic and unified as children. Um, you know, before the, the age of one or two, when we're, we're developing and learning language, we're in a unified field. We're not just picking up, you know, a memory of a sound or a symbol. Um, we are having a transmission <laughs> from the field of the being you know, the parent usually, um, that we have this emotional relationship with and we're picking up everything and that's how we develop and learn, um, all the knowledge that we take on and children are imprinted with everything that's unhealed within our ancestral lineage. And unless your ancestors are, um, fully enlightened beings, <laughs> um, you're going to, you're going to receive a transmission of their state of consciousness. Um, and for most of us, there's not an awareness, uh, of that true real state of love. Not to say that your parents aren't necessarily doing their best and trying to be loving beings and or that they don't love you, but to, to the degree that they have knowledge of themselves um, and what wounds that they have unhealed. And I, I see it go back many, many generations, uh, patterns um, and beliefs. 
that get transmitted to us as children, um, passed down. And when we experience that state, um, because children, again, are born in love, there is a splitting that happens in that moment. This is the way I experience it. Um, there's some message and to, you know, to be clear, most people, it's a pretty painful moment and, and message. And I see those relationships, um, exactly the way that those memories are held inside of people when I'm reading them. So, um, we don't sit there in that moment as children and say, this parent doesn't know reality because they're traumatized and they don't know that they're love and they're giving me false information. Of course not. We're so unified with them that we feel it in, in our own interior, the way that it lives within them. And we feel somehow that we have been split off and separated from love as that love is not inside of us. Um, and in that moment, what I, the way that I interpret it is that we begin to seek to find a way to cope with that energy, um, whether that means, you know, completely shutting down or abandoning our, that voice inside of us that knows its essential nature of love, of that sacred voice that knows that that core of its being and its truth and its humanity are something that we instinctually and intuitively can speak for. You know, when children cry out, it's because um, they don't understand the world around them, pulling them in all these different directions, and they know that they have a sense um, of what their needs are, their innate sense of their needs. And that could be deeply severed the ability to actually have an awareness of what our truth is, what our needs are, um, what our boundaries are. Uh, so we can start to believe that if love is outside of me, then I need that, that attachment and from the parent. And so I have to deny and go against my instinctual awareness of what this truth is inside of me and um, compromise it to get the love and connection that I need that I must have in order to survive. And in fact, there's actually regions of our brain that perceive that we will die if we don't have that love and attachment. And again, that's not like a logical, concrete memory that we have in that moment, but the brain has that experience. And um, we can be very gripped by that region of the brain, then programming neural pathways and then beliefs and then roles that we take on in order to cope with all of that. Um, and those are built over time from that environment. And we need to dismantle those things and bring them to our awareness 
Um, so if love is outside, then the relationship with a parent very quickly can become codependent. We lose a sense of sovereignty and realness. If love is outside, then it's very easy for the consensual reality that tells us that we have to um, be worthy of love because we're absent from love, therefore unworthy, um, that we need to um, succeed, um, find you know, the ideal partner, find the ideal job, make the ideal income, have the ideal body, whatever it is, all these addictions uh, that people experience. Uh, I, I wish it was just common knowledge that addiction is very universal. Um, it's not just, you know, harmful substances. Um, but I really love the Buddhist concept of the hungry ghost. Um, there's this, um, archetype and of this actual like space where we try to receive nourishment and take it in, in this Buddhist image. And there's a hole. Uh, so nothing can actually nourish us it, the hole down the digestive tract, the throat, the esophagus, the stomach. Every bit of nourishment that we try to take in is just falling right out of us. And there's this emptiness. And that is that state of separation, of perceiving that somehow we're separated from our real nature as love, as our existence, as our true purpose. And so... Um, if I continue to try to get it externally and take it in and feed and feed and feed through these addictive uh, compulsions, um, through trying to get a partner that will love me, um, I think uh, that one can go unnoticed a lot. <laughs> um, or, you know, any one of these compulsions um, we continually try to get that sense of wholeness outside. And because we continue to fail in getting that nourishment to fill us from an external source, this feedback loop of failure and shame is compounded. Um, and we just keep repeating that loop and we get stuck in this pattern. And even for me, yoga fit into that category. Um, doing yoga as, you know, a physical practice, not just the path of, of self-realization, which is a dismantling. Um, but yoga to try to, you know, strengthen my physical body was putting me in these exalted states. And that's, there's beauty and truth in that. But even that, I felt like when I did ayahuasca, I realized that it was stopping me from feeling it. Like if I didn't do it, I, I would feel very unwhole. So even something beautiful like yoga, I was using it to try to escape. Um, and I invite people that I work with 
you know, for many years I was just doing cleansings and um, interventions, reading the light body, finding interventions and doing it. But at this point, um, my guides are really, for the most part, pushing me to tell other people that they need to find the source of truth and power within them. <laughs> and I, to start that journey, I'm very honest with people and I invite them um, with a broader brushstroke of wisdom teachings, I eventually invite them into a space of um, actually perceiving their own hungry ghost. Um, so again, ayahuasca was such an immense, profound teacher for me. It's really finding language to take them through the same initiation that I went through. Um, and when I, when I tell people, you know, sometimes, sometimes people dive in and they are so receptive and transparent immediately. And, you know, like myself, um, a lot of people have resistance, uh, come up and I think denial and confusion, like, what do you mean? I'm not a heart open person. <laughs> and, um, that's, uh, that's not what I mean when I talk about heart awakening. It's, you know, this, uh, this belief that we are going through a, a time on our planet of the return of the feminine, to me is a principle. It's the receptive force. It's, you know, a lot of people might translate it as it's time for women to take the roles of the patriarchy. <laughs> Um, and to charge on as the dominators. Um, but to me, the, the, the patriarchy and the feminine were really like this force inside of me that was, uh, this is the way that I personally say it, my wounded masculine, my imbalanced masculine um, was resisting my feminine treasure of heart openness to all aspects of my being. And that is the wounded masculine is the hungry ghost that in the far end of the spectrum becomes this hungry perpetrator that just wants to, you know, rape and pillage the earth and take and take and take and dominate. Most of us aren't living in that extreme, but, um, you know, for me, the real is not able to be found unless we're willing to look with awareness and skillfulness and safety directly at the unreal. Um, so I create a, a skillful um, a, a practice and a sharing after I've worked with somebody and doing clearings on them and interventions in their light body on a whole lot of stuff that we see going on that they've inherited from their lineage. I invite them to do that work and to take it a step further to reconnect to their true source of power, to, to reclaim it. Um, and that means that there's deep levels of forgiveness 
and letting go of the belief that we're victims and that we're powerless and that we don't have a choice. Also understanding that the brain very much believes it's receiving a benefit from those roles and identities. And that we can override that through awareness. And awareness to me is really light. So you don't necessarily have to go through the specific memories of your trauma, but to become aware of the interior space and the patterns and places where we feel stuck and powerless, where we believe that we're not free, where we believe um, that if we don't hold on to our anger, we won't be able to defend ourselves, um, that we have to have these shields, you know, where we believe that um, someone did something to us and that resentment can't be let go of, we can't dismantle it, or that we have to play out roles of saving other people and interfering with their free will, people who aren't receptive, you know, otherwise, you know, maybe a part of your brain thinks it's going to die if it doesn't save another person. Um, you know, I see all this stuff and I'm able to uh, talk about it instantaneously with my clients, the specific experiences and relationships that they had and the messages that they received. So with the people that I work with, it opens the door very quickly. Um, they feel safe by the container that I'm creating um, and the fact that I'm able to see these things. And uh, so they become willing very quickly. Um, I think a lot of people are starting um, to want to get to that real, to that space of the real. So if I don't have awareness and shine a light on it, it stays in a hidden space. It stays veiled and it's constantly operating and it, it therefore can take control and run the script of how my life unfolds. So if I look at it, and there's a specific technique that I teach um, to do that in a way that's a safe container. So if I look at it, I'm shining light on it just by having an awareness of it. And I create this um, dialogue between the witness, which is very connected to our state of light. It's the closest thing that we have until we reach full enlightenment. And this witness, which is, uh, you know, pure presence, has no past, has no future, um, is impartial, has no judgment. This witness that is just an observer and is looking right at this part of us. It's a little bit of a regression that first experienced this space where these complexes arose and started putting us into the patterns of these roles. And so basically we're, we're re rewiring neuropathways in the brain. We're kind of derailing an unconscious pathway that's very familiar, um, that's self-sabotaging, that's taking us into states of powerlessness and hurtful, you know, relationships or the inability to access um, 
our true passion, our true purpose, whatever it is, um, states of health, um, you know, it, again, it plays out in any aspect of our life where there's sabotage happening or an inability to move forward into what it is that we really feel called to. And we're not just seeking power. There are people that come to me and they want to learn. They want techniques and they want to learn to be powerful. Um, and if people aren't interested in dismantling, I really can't agree to work with anybody. So I invite this dismantling, this death archetype, where we start first discerning these roles, these patterns, these things that aren't working, these unhealthy, repetitive things playing out in our life, these addictions, these hungry ghosts. <laughs> we discern them. We, we become aware that they exist. And then... Um, we begin the process of discrediting that they are not the real, that they're not truths. Um, you know, whatever people's concept is of source, the creator, mother, father, God, light, great spirit, that in that field, you know, sometimes you can just say, is it true in that light? Is it true, you know, in the eyes of the creator? But there's so much confusion and gripping onto these states for survival, these sabotaging states where we believe we're somehow not free or um, that we have to hold on and protect ourselves. So we have to discredit those. And that's kind of when our, you know, we're doing this process where the brain is always weighing risk and benefit and our brains really believe that these self-sabotaging um, conditions and perceptions are somehow benefiting us when in fact they're keeping us completely separated from the real. <laughs> and so we discredit them in order to tip those scales of risk and benefit. And we say, wait a minute, I see how much this is sabotaging my ability to access my life force, my ability to open my heart, to trust, to love, to release alienation and states of separation consciousness. Um, so after we've done some discrediting and, um, then there's a dismantling process. And again, that really happens from continuing to bring awareness. And I think a space um, of understanding, if we can get that far, sometimes so much resistance will come up. So much holding on and not wanting to enter the unknown and let go of these things. So it takes time. It's a slow, steady process, step by step. And um, if we can get to that space to create a stillness, a softening, allowing spaces inside of us that have never been seen or heard to be understood and recognized, I think that that is the first step and doorway 
to a full integration of some of our fragmented parts um, that will eventually bring us into this insight where a lot is forgiven and there's this unconditional love that there's this catharsis, there's this moment that I've witnessed in my own initiations and with many other people I've worked with again and again, where for the first time that source of love and absolute unconditional love pours in and, um, and things let go and the landscape changes and that voice, that space we de- we over time develop such a clear relationship to it that that space of catharsis, that love, that insight becomes our new source and landscape. Um, and then because our interior space has transformed, we start changing the way uh, we organize our life around us and our relationships. Yeah, when you were speaking about <clears throat> the masculine and the feminine, it, it reminded me of a of a story from a group of people called the Shuar. They they live in the Ecuadorian uh, Amazon, and very much I think pointing to what you're speaking about uh, is often it seems like as people, as you were saying, we we maybe see the limitation in in something, and so the natural reaction is to go to the other extreme, to try and replace it with something else. And I think the Shuar have a really beautiful way of looking at it. They, you know, they say kind of, as you were pointing to the, the, the nature of the masculine, which is embodied more so in man Mm -hmm. is, is they're the hunters and the gatherers. They, they, they kill the animals. They, they, they cut down the trees to have firewood to, to be able to cook the food um, but they don't look at that as bad. They say that's that's the nature of the masculine. That's the nature of man, uh, and it's good. It it allows life to 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 unfold, to to be sustained. But that the role of the woman is the role of the wisdom, and to say that's enough. <laughs> You've killed enough. You we we have we we have enough wood now, and. That it's also that it's that balance that there's there's something in that balance which is where wholeness arises from. Um, something else you were really talking about that that I find fascinating is you, you've pointed to it in in different ways. This idea of sovereignty or, or freedom, and I think you said something really really poignant when you said. Often when that's, when that's threatened, it's like the ego feels threatened. And so there's, there's a resistance to that. And I think just in the little bit of maybe like, you know, communication we've had and without getting too political, but, but I think it, it does also relate to, to kind of, uh, uh, the, the times we're living in, it seems like there's a real resistance to this idea of freedom and in, in, in a, even in a political sense, even uh, I think in this time of like COVID that we're living in, freedom is almost seen as something that's, that's like a luxury and, and, and almost more like a Western way of seeing something. And in many of the indigenous traditions that I've, I've studied are also in Tibetan Buddhism, that idea of freedom is, is actually primal. It's, it's, 
that idea of liberation, mm-hmm. you know, that that's synonymous with freedom. And, and it also has this soft quality, which you were saying that there, there's an allowing, there, there's a surrendering there, there's a softening. And it's not that hardness of saying, everyone has to believe this, everyone has to do this. If you don't agree with me, then I have the ability to dominate you, to, to label you, to, to ultimately to, to kill you. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's that's always where the extreme goes. Um, so I don't know what the question is, but but I guess it's around this idea of freedom or sovereignty. Uh, from your experience, I guess why is that so important, and 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 how have you seen that in the traditions you've studied that 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 idea of of freedom, of liberation, and and why is that so important for people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, tiptoeing around that fine line of the political discussion, um, the West is creating a narrative around that word right now, um, really co-opting the, the, the definition of the word freedom. Um, and it's really there's such a strong narrative right now about anybody who uses that term <laughs> it is um it is purely a constructed western narrative that's convenient to create divisiveness um from my perspective um there's so much construction of narrative right now um, to define these things for others um, and then to have us not question it. Um, yeah, certainly my experience um, with some of the, um, you know, emotional response that people have to teachings <laughs> um that maybe uh, myself as, you know, a European background, <laughs> that I come and talk about what these core wisdom teachings that I've received from the, the Tibetan Buddhists, from yoga, uh, paths of, of self-realization, and from uh, the Pakawandino, the state of freedom, um, the way that it's taught, if I express it, um, there it, do, it can get called into question. It hasn't really happened to me, but I've seen it happen to other people who are sharing these wisdom teachings. Um, I'm not really regurgitating other people's wisdom teachings. I make it very clear to people that I'm only speaking from my direct experiences. None of my knowledge is legitimate unless it comes from direct experience. But yes, I have heard... Um, I have heard and seen, uh, the discomfort created, particularly in academic communities here in the West. Uh, and I have a strong social justice background. My academic life was very much geared towards, uh, complete, you know, deep steeping in, um, social justice. But, uh, when we start to talk about freedom there's a like a, a privilege there's a response that this is somehow privileged um and when we talk about 
having awareness of our interior spaces and knowing that regardless of what's happening in the phenomenal world, that this space is my true nature, is my sacred space, and that even if there is a perpetrator out there, in the hierarchy that we're experiencing in the world of all these states of privilege that happen, um, even in that state, um, that what's going on in my interior is a choice just in this interior space. I remember the, uh, the Carol elders telling us that when the conquistadors came to Peru seeking gold, um, you know, they, the way that it, the story was told to me is that the, the prophecy keepers knew about this cycle of time that they decided to leave the, the sacred valley in Cusco and they went high up into the mountains in Asangate and developed a village there in order to preserve the wisdom teachings and the medicine. They didn't want it lost. They knew the upheaval was coming from these people seeking gold, the Spanish. And the, when they came down from the mountain, the way we're told is that it was, you know, a few hundred years later for the next cycle of time in the fulfillment of prophecy, which we're at now in this moment, there's another upheaval happening. And the elders, in my direct experience with the elders, um, they communicated that if they didn't forgive the perpetrators, the conquistadors, that they would have a soul wound that would trap them and would have completely demolished them and destroyed their power. And they are very, very intent on preserving this sacred uh, wisdom. They knew that they had to forgive. Um, in order to not fall into that trap. So, uh, you know, for me, um, the Tibetan elders have said the same thing. <laughs> they are not caught in that dis divisive battle between the perpetrator and the victim. They have immense compassion and patience for how that story is playing out in humanity. They don't deny it or try to remove themselves from it. In fact, we have even more responsibility to have an unconditional love and awareness of people's experience and lived experience, acknowledging that, you know. Uh, but from the higher perspective, the eagle condor perspective, <laughs> Uh, they have to have that wisdom intact that um, they understand ultimately we can get back to that state of freedom um, and we can recognize that as the truth 
in our own perceptual field and maintain that space. Um, and become a resource for others rather than going into the trap where this soul wound would completely demolish them and disempower them and destroy everything that they have created. And I can see that when they speak about that. It is a, it's a tremendous insight for me. Um, you know, when the Dalai Lama talks about what's happened with the movement to free Tibet from China, you know, another master-slave paradigm, he is always very conscious about what he says about China. <laughs> um, he doesn't create an embroilment because if we do that, that that means that that, dis that disruption is living in our own interior space and then we will become entangled to it and invited in. We will take on the karma if we become embroiled with it. So we have a choice. And I had to personally meet some very devastating and even death-defying moments in my life with that same choice and my own resistance to it. So I understand the narrative right now and how it's very easily being used and um, that it's really reaching into trauma spaces survival spaces separation consciousness that has yet been revealed inside of the collective um, but is absolutely necessary and even people who maybe um, have a lot of awareness of some of the layers of narrative that are happening right now, the way that they're being used and the way that they're creating a divide, that is really to create a sense that we, we're not in power, that there's hopelessness. For myself, when I've had states of not feeling power and trust, um, Hopelessness sneaks in. It likes to be really veiled. It's such a sneaky um, complex. And if hopelessness sneaks in, the ego goes, I have to do something. You know, I have to be the moral one. I have to be on the right side and I have to force everyone to see things my way. Um, because I can't do nothing. This hopelessness is unbearable. So the ego sweeps in and takes us down this pit, <laughs> which we can dig ourselves in really deep. And it's, it starts wanting to scream out, you know, alienating one side or the other. Um, I've gotten into those pits before as well. And in a lot of different um, dynamics and had to climb out of them. Um, and had to keep my mouth shut, <laughs> take a minute and observe and own what's happening in my interior, recognizing that my ego really at the core was feeling a sense of hopelessness and that I was entangling myself with the karma of this, of this narrative and that I wasn't free in that moment. Um, and that it's ineffective and actually makes us powerless. And I wanted 
to be effective. I knew that was useless. So I really had to drop it and let it go. Um, we're con- I'm constantly owning my entanglements <laughs> um, and seeing the way that I'm projecting them into the outside world. So even the story of uh, perpetrator, victim, dominator, master slave, um, I had a really strong feeling, you know, for instance, even from childhood, when I already spoke about this idea that we had war and homelessness and starvation and racism, and I saw all of these things, I came from, you know, this Tantra Yoga lineage that was socialist, like they were social justice activists, that's like deeply inside of me, um, and uh, it gives me a, a desire to really listen from my heart and to be responsible. But um, you know, I see this way that that's those emotional states are being used to really co-opt um, our perception of what's happening right now and. When I saw myself at first seeing all of these things happening in the world, um, I did have the perception that there was a perpetrator out there harming humanity. In addition to humanity themselves not being aware and playing along with that narrative and feeding that narrative unconsciously because they're separated from love, they're separated from their true power, and we get co-opted very quickly into a lot of perceptions. So I saw, at six years old, all of humanity doing that. I was like, man, they're screwed. You know, um, This is trouble. And, uh, and yet, you know, a child also has this um, complete belief that anything is possible. So I really thought that we all need to get back to this state of peace and we can do it. We can create it. It's within our power. But I know that I was holding an alienation and a resistance and a master slave paradigm in that moment. That was inside of me. Um, you know, I had, uh, there's, this is so important, um, in terms of the forgiveness process. I had to see, the way, like I said, that hungry ghost goes all the way to this extreme on the far end of the spectrum of the people who are dominating, the small percentage of people who are dominating and taking and nipping and pillaging the earth and creating war and um, creating these um, economic situations and, you know, the system that we live in. And, um, I was studying this stuff and I was getting so angry in college. Um, and I, I couldn't handle living with that anger. Um, so I quickly went back into the spiritual spectrum where I just wanted to push it all away and not look at it. And I couldn't really find this middle ground, but the, the initiation that I went through in heart awakening spoke to this. I didn't just have to open to the ability to welcome myself to feel present with 
things that were rejected and love them all unconditionally. I also had to get to the point on the later stages of that initiation where I saw this archetype of the perpetrator. And this is what I've called like, you know, there's a, there's a deep narcissism in that level of um, the political dynamic, the sociopolitical dynamic of the people who are, you know, doing the, the, ma the master side of things, enslaving, taking from others. And I needed to dismantle that paradigm inside of me. I got to this space where it became very clear, even through, um, again, like this perspective plays out in everything. And I saw it through the wound in the... Uh, going back many generations um, in the masculine lineages of my own family. Um, again, my parents were the children of men returning from war who were completely fragmented and nobody was helping them. And they had to be raised by these fathers and the mothers had had no idea how to be present uh, for what those men were carrying and their own, their own wounds that they carried as the, as the mothers. Um, and I have seen so many generations of people who had to stop feeling. Um, and I really realized that, they're not able to be nourished. Um, that that level of, you know, the conquistador, <laughs> um, that if I look inside of their heart and really get very, very transparent down to the core and I say, what is it that I see within them that I project and see? Uh, in this story, in this narrative um, that's playing out that I'm still hooked into, that I felt like I was in a fight against. And I said, uh, they, they can't receive love. Um, I actually asked Spirit a direct question. Um, show me where this judgment lives inside me because I haven't forgiven this. And I know if I haven't forgiven it the way that the Karo and the, the Tibetan Buddhist taught me, if I haven't forgiven it, that um, I'm, it's going to bite me back, you know, on a soul level. And it is biting me back. I could see how it was playing out. And so um, I wanted to heal that story and after I got comfortable with exploring and dismantling and, and being present, the last bit of that particular initiation was to find forgiveness. Um, so I asked to see where this, this judgment lived inside of me. I just directly decided to own it. If I can perceive it, then it must live inside of me. Um, and I had a dream of, uh, there was a baby in the dream and I had gone off and completely forgotten about the existence of this baby. Um, and I needed to like feed the baby my breast milk in the dream. 
And I panicked and realized I left this baby starving. And I ran home and I picked up the baby. This is this was spirit's response to show me where the judgment lives within me. I picked up this baby in my arms and I was like, please take the milk. You're going to die. I forgot to feed the baby. I was just so panic-stricken. Please take the nourishment of the Divine Mother. Drink this nourishment of the milk of the mother. Um, the baby lied there uh, with this vacant look on its face, completely void of the ability to even recognize what it meant to take in the nourishment. And I begged and begged, and, and then all of a sudden I went, oh, I get it. And I woke up. I was like, this is day one. This is just the beginning of the forgiveness process. I realize, how could you do anything but love a baby? How could you do anything but recognize its divine nature to be nourished? And I... I was like, I, you can't fight a baby and force it to receive love. You can't, re you can't battle, you can't run, you can't rescue. I was like, the only thing I can do is agree to love this baby in this state of it refusing to receive love. So what I'm saying is that I had a relationship with the perpetrator or the dominator, the conquistador, the narcissist in my family lineage and in the collective consciousness. And they were one and the same. And I, I saw them all as not being able to perceive love. If you can't perceive love, you're not being nourished. You can't be in the receptive. You can't receive. That's the, that's the feminine yin force, the receptive. This force could not receive. So I saw it in this baby. Um, and I thought, I need to be able to love that just as it is in my family line and in the greater play that's happening in the the collective story. Um, and so after I saw the way it lived in me, I made an agreement and I asked, the divine, please teach me, mentor me and I'll listen, you know, I'll, I'll show up. But teach me how to open my heart and love this unconditionally with no resistance. I don't want to hide any drop of resistance. I'm going to be completely transparent. And I went on a journey. This took me about a year. There were a series of lucid dreams. And this one day, um, you know, maybe like, not quite a year, maybe like nine months later, I was going to visit Amma. Amma, she is this hugging saint from India. Um, she's, you know, one of the awakened beings uh, that we have access to. There's a number of them on the planet, a small number. And when I went to meet her, uh, she does the hug and... I wanted to make a prayer to her, and I said, I, I feel like I have 95% forgiveness, but there's still this little bit of resistance where I'm playing into the story, and I don't want to hide it. I want 100% forgiveness for this paradigm. Um, I think 
I felt a great deal of emotion when she hugged me. I made this prayer internally. And um, within a couple of days, Alma showed up in a lucid dream. <laughs> and she was hugging one of these people that were these archetypes of the narcissist. And um, she was hugging him. And what I perceived and witnessed inside of her is that she could not be entangled or hooked in any way whatsoever by the confusion in that being. It couldn't harm her. Uh, she was free. She looked at this narcissist as a child of God, a divine child. And when I saw this, it there was something transmitted. And, you know, I had gone through a lot of tests and I kept showing up to commit, to really let go completely. But, you know, grace comes in if you continue to hold awareness. Um, we're not alone when we do that. There are allies that come and help. And so because I had shown up with my intention and commitment, I was able to receive help. And this transmission went into me, and I completely broke free of any entanglement with that story. And I think humanity has the invitation to break free from that now. And if we don't break free from that, it's very easy to be misled. Um, it's very easy for someone else's narrative to grip our ego from that place of fear and hopelessness. And so freedom, for, you know, freedom is uh, breaking free of that entanglement of that being hooked, of the roles and perceptions that I took on, and all the forces that could be attracted to me because I still gripped onto that. The way that I saw the world. My, of course, as you said, you know, there is a divine masculine. There is a beautiful, powerful divine masculine. Um, I was, the masculine for me is only wounded in all of us, male or female, if it rejects the feminine. But the masculine in its natural state is a sacred force. Um, the same for the feminine. If the receptive force rejects the light, the dynamic force, she loses her power and becomes entangled with a with a deep soul wound um so those are the shadow sides um they're only in shadow because they're rejecting the other force they have to meet the two have to meet and they have to welcome and that's done in in our interior and it's done through initiation it's done step by step you know in the paco andino lineage um the pampa messiah the rites of the pampa messiah are the state of that returning of the feminine treasure. It's the state in which we begin to heal that. For me, experientially, that means I had to find 
the part of my masculine force that was rejecting its feminine. In order to fully get to that state, I had to forgive. First seeing it in me, and then seeing how I judged it outside of me. Because that kept me from being free from it. I was gripped by it. I was caught in these repeating, sabotaging states because I was still trying to battle with it through that judgment, through that rejection. So to really complete the Pampa Messiah right, that forgiveness had to happen. That's what the Tibetan teachers have said, and, and that is what the yoga teaching says, and that's what the elders that I worked with in Peru have taught me. Um, we have to forgive the ones who are living in that state of being, who do not know how to receive love. We have to forgive it. Um, and that happens inside. So that breaks us free from that, from that relationship. And that is what this prophecy to me personally, <laughs> that is what it's about. And once humanity breaks free of that paradigm, we regain so much power. We completely turn our back on the, the uh, constructed narrative. And if we turn our back on it, it collapses very, very quickly. It doesn't have power if we aren't caught in, in war with it. Yeah, beautiful. <clears throat> One of the things you, you you've mentioned a number of times, because you're you're talking about you've you've used this word shamanism, and 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 I think that's a word that's it's quite broad, and and a lot of people have, as you said, different narratives around it, different beliefs uh, of what that is, and one of the things you you've pointed to a number of times is this idea of the dream space, like that the. the a lot of these transmissions or a lot of these teachings they're they're coming in the dream space and 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 I think that's a topic that's that's very often overlooked that that in many cultures we come from we've in a way we've forgotten that dream space and you also use this this word a couple times of this idea of remembering and uh, you know, from from my experience, even one of the plants that I do a lot of work with is is tobacco, and and one of the main qualities of tobacco is really opening and and putting us in touch with that dream space. Because in in indigenous cultures all over the world, that was a very very important part of reality, <laughs> and and it seems like something that that most of us we we kind of ignore or we don't put much focus on and and it seems like for you that's also where a lot of these teachings are coming from these transmissions so in 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 your view why is that space so important and 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 how can people begin to learn more from 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 opening that dream space mhm mm i love that question um i tell people all the time, um, again, uh, there's ayahuasca, for instance, one of the lessons ayahuasca taught me, you become completely face-to-face -face with places that have been hidden, and 
there's a level of honesty that we we've really been guarding ourselves from for the people that I work with um I do not give them technical teachings about lucid dreaming I teach them that the the initiation in and of itself will open them um to to working with the dream state automatically and that I have seen this again and again and again um people do not believe me when I tell them this <laughs> but there is something that happens because there's this call for the the natural the real state of our being uh you know i i remember hearing one teacher calling it the sword of enlightenment <laughs> uh this purpose for awakening to um our true nature like we're talking about the real and the unreal if we start making a choice in the same way that ayahuasca taught me to bring awareness and more intimacy to the conditioned responses to the unreal to the tr- to the untruths that we've been gripping onto and we're doing that in our conscious waking world whether it's through ceremony um and and ritual or plants or um or this process this uh, inquiry process that I have been teaching. Um, if you're doing this in your waking world, um, this is the most supported thing you could possibly do. And it is the most, uh, in terms of like giving our free will, to the journey of awakening there is an upper world alliance of light that has been waiting for us to do this that is so eager for us to do this um the enlightened state of being and itself and beings of light that have awoken when they see us commit to this in my experience what you're doing in your waking world starts coming into your dream life and there are two types of dreams there are clarity dreams what i'm calling lucid dreams this is what the tibetans say and there are karma dreams and that's just the fuzz you know like dreams you might not even hold on to or remember there's weird content it's blurry it's just um karma kind of um purging and playing out mirroring but clarity dreams or lucid dreams um i don't do technical teachings i if i bring a person through the initiation of this heart awakening 100% of the people who commit to that to doing this process of looking right at the unreal they're activating the light of awareness they're activating the true nature and that starts to become a f- a familiar space when you repeat it <laughs> everyone that i've worked with who who does this practice starts having lucid dreams 
Um, I really think it's, it's, uh, it's just the initiation of itself that we start regaining that source uh, in the core of our being, that relationship becomes more and more familiar. It strengthens. It becomes this inner mentor, this pure light, this inner mentor that uh, guides us. And if if we practice this state of the witness, looking at this, um, at some of the conditioned beliefs, and we're shining a light on it in our waking world, it starts to seep into our dream life. And I personally believe that there are there are allies in the in the light realms who are bringing us through these dreams just because I meet them so often and everyone I work with ends up seeing a guide show up. Um, and they're rewiring our light body and they're rewiring our neural pathways um, very, very quickly. So even if people have never had lucid dreams before, um, again, I take it for granted, and I know this is unfamiliar, that the divine is always speaking through us as us, and if we ask it questions and become really transparent, it is, there, we are not alone. We are being supported, um, and they are waiting. Like, spirit cannot interfere with our free will. If I want to stay veiled in this tiny suffering you know, destructive, self-sabotaging pattern that I'm in and not get real and honest with it. Spirit's like, I can't do anything. I'm not going to show up and rescue you. You need to learn about your true nature. And the minute that I decide or that any one of us takes responsibility and says, wait, what am I creating here? What do, what do I believe? What can I, sh you know, what can I dismantle? This immense flood of support pours in. This is the way I experience it. And I tell people all the time to prepare for lucid dreams. Um, as they start having these openings and different stages of the initiation happen. Um, because they've made that conscious choice. Once you've made that choice, your free will has said to the realized self, the fully enlightened, awakened self, I agree, essentially. And so it shows up to help dismantle and guide us, and it gives us a tremendous amount of support. So I take it for granted that I can always be in that conversation. There's just a little bit that we need to understand about how to engage in that conversation, and for me it really is you know, welcoming um, this honesty, welcoming this responsibility for this freedom for our interior space, for what I'm holding and creating inside of there. So, um, you know, everybody who has followed that and done that within, you know, six months to a year, they start having floods of lucid dreams, people who have never had them before. Um, so those components, um, being willing to unveil, welcoming the way that ayahuasca completely strips back the veil and shines the truth of some of the 
these dark spaces and you can't, you can't look away from it. It's so loud. It's so um, magnified. Um, that's a level of honesty that we actually do have the power to do, all of us, <laughs> to learn that wisdom that the plant teaches, um, even if people don't have the opportunity to work with the plant. Um, and that's a huge, powerful choice. There's, there, that's one of the greatest powers in that moment. Um, I believe that our awakened, fully enlightened self will support that. And it does. So uh, I see it again and again. Um, you know, when I worked with San Pedro, um, uh, Wachuma, I was working with these uh, two women. They're called the twins, um, Isabel and Olinda, I think. I for, it was so long ago, but um, these beautiful women from the north coast of Peru. Um, again, I wanted to ask, you know, should, you know, is this one of my allies? Should I work with this medicine? And I did the same thing as I did with the ayahuasca. I invited it. Um, and that night, um, you know, how often do we ask these big questions? How often do we invite spirit directly and make this communication and intention? Um, we can't just sit around and wait. <laughs> we have a part to play. So we can, we, we're all invited to enter that dialogue. A lot of times we're just saying, Fix this, please, please. I don't know what to do. Um, and that that question is really just saying, I believe I have no power. Rescue me. And we don't get a response when we ask that question. Maybe sometimes. But this is a much different space, a dynamic, uh, a sense of, wisdom about the way that we're approaching our request to spirit i have a desire to again like i said very early on i wanted to let go of what was unreal i have a desire to let go of the lies that i'm carrying um that is so powerful on the side of spirit we cannot help but being supported when we do that there's so much uh, huge support. So, um, so knowing, okay, where can I find this inside of me and what can I let go of is a much different question. How can I get back to, to the true nature of my being and reorganize the world outside of me from a state of truth? I have to be able to look at what I'm consciously choosing through my free will that's keeping it away from me i have to do that first um you know with the with the law of attraction that is a spiritual law but the law of receptivity overrides the law of attraction if you haven't passed through the gate of law of the law of receptivity you're not going to be able to manifest consciously i had to enter the state of surrender of letting go, of entering 
the dismantling. And I decided to try to learn how to do that through painstaking step, you know, one at a time with great humility, a spirit's, you know, workhorse um, to start to empty the vessel so, so the light could fill it, you know. And my experience is that, the, you know, purification, and if you understand that the basis of the spiritual practice, if, if I were to communicate it, is purification and exaltation. So if I'm willing to go into those spaces and get honest and see what I'm holding in the underworld um, and, and start to release and do my side of emptying, then the, the light can enter the vessel. If I'm emptying all that charge that's unreal that I'm carrying in the, and through the process of purification going into the dark, the light can come in. And then the more the light comes in, the more awareness we have of deeper and deeper layers of what we're holding. So we go again into the depth of purification. We create space. More light comes in. And it just keeps looping in this feedback and they strengthen each other and they get closer and closer uh over time uh step by step so you know when i was when i was working i got sidetracked a little when i was working with these twin they, the twins from the north coast um i asked the the plat spirit of san pedro uh, if it was one of my allies and i I had this dream. I saw the twins. Um, they were living at this little in this little hut, and they were laughing and beaming light and smiles and sweetness, like this child energy, so playful and giggling. Um, and they didn't speak a word, but we were psychically communicating in the dream. And they uh, directed me to follow them. And we went through this short little trail up to the peak of the mountain. And there was a giant well at the top of the peak. And it had a big cover on it. And they pushed this heavy cover off the well. And they took this massive ladle and they scooped the ladle into the well. And this green honey was pouring out of the ladle, the ladle when they, they held it up to me. And they held it right up and they said, uh, this is the blood of the mountain. It's the nectar of God. Your only task is to drink the nectar. Receive it. And they fed it to me. And when I woke up, this is when I was just coming out of like the resistance phase from the ayahuasca journey long ago. And I had so much shame and resistance pouring and like a tsunami of shame. And I, I had made that choice, that agreement to love it, to love everything that I saw within me that had been rejected, to love it unconditionally, to allow myself to be to slowly learn to be in peace in the underworld. 
to walk gracefully and uh, not to push it away. And um, and when they gave me this dream uh, with the San Pedro, with this um, nectar of God and asked me to drink it, when I woke up, this constant voice of criticism that was judging and measuring and it like I didn't even know it was there until I experienced its absence after drinking that nectar in the dream in it in its absence I realized that that voice had been running on automatic all the time um and it was gone and it never came back um, so what happens in a lucid dream, these initiations, these agreements, I had made a lot of choices before I got to that point about my agreements and what I was willing to do. That allowed that doorway to open. In these lucid dream, in these, these clarity dreams, um, where we're meeting the divine in our true nature, where we're being nourished, <laughs> And receiving gifts like this, I um, what I understand is that in my brain, in that dream state, I'm in a delta theta brainwave, which is what small children are in. It's a hypnosis brainwave. It's a deep meditation brainwave. When we're in a lucid dream state, we're in that brainwave. And that is the easiest state to program the brain, the neural pathways. So even though I had a, a, an addicted neural pathway constantly running this self-criticism and measuring stick, um, in one dream, my neural pathways were rewired in that lucid dream state. Very simple, basic understandings that if I make everything transparent to God... <laughs> to the divine, if I make everything transparent, and even if we agree to do that, you know, the nature of the mind is still, like, even if you're vigilant, it will hide things, obviously, there's a stage, you don't have to force it, but, but I have a, I have a implicit agreement with the divine that I want to um, be transparent and bring it to the feet of this mother, father, God light. Um, that explicit agreement, I think, is what, for me, opens the doorway. Um, and letting these incremental stages of understanding and healing unfold and just doing our job to show up, it helps a lot to work with really wise medicine teachers uh, in a lineage I, I I personally feel um, I'm not one of those people who just says, we're all the divine and we all should just, um, it, you know, claim our power. Yeah, that's true. But there's so many sneaky little things that our, our ego is going to attach to and identify with. We need people of wisdom who've already gone on the journey, who understand, um, you know, the nature of the way that the mind works and veils things, and that can help you create a solid, stable container that keeps getting more stabilized over time. 
the elders who've already been there, who've, who've gone, walked before us. Um, it's not a hierarchy, but yes, they hold more knowledge and wisdom and understanding. I am very, very much of the personal belief that working with a very high integrity lineage is the way to go, and not just trying to navigate these worlds on our own. Um, uh, I'm incredibly grateful for what for what I learned from the lineage, um, and I continue to try to stabilize uh, those states of truth. Because even when you experience them, that's like day one. <laughs> it doesn't mean you completed the job, task is done. When you experience some states of truth, sometimes it's just the start. Um, and you need to you need to stabilize it. You need to con you need to start. Oh, I had this realization. Now I have even more clarity. The light came in so strong. That doesn't mean I accomplished something and I'm done. Usually, what that means is now I can go even deeper into the dark and see all these habitual patterns. They're much clearer to me now. Whoa! Look at that and that and that. <laughs> I got to pull my energy back in and stop you know, leaking my energy and stop um, disempowering my connection to the real. I have to stop doing it through those habits that I've formed. So when the light comes in, you know, we get tested and we listen deeper and deeper and we learn more as we go. Um, but... Uh, yeah, people can try to learn lucid dreaming through technical assistance, and that may help. That's not necessarily wrong. I have not picked up any books on lucid dreaming, um, but I do know that immense healing happens, and I only teach people about lucid dreaming as an aspect of healing and initiation. It's not just an exploration into really cool things that we can control. Um, it's not about control at all. So uh, the immense power of, uh, of the initiations in and of themselves, I think, open the doorway. In the same way that ayahuasca opens that doorway. Um, we're looking right at something with awareness. We're activating the realized self even though we're not at completely 100% living from that perceptual state at all times, through self-inquiry, through ceremony, we develop a relationship to it, and that relationship grows. And that part of our being, it comes in, it comes in and it starts... Uh, it starts aiding us and supporting that, that journey. It pulls us forward. Yeah, wonderful. In in the beginning you were talking about this this idea of prophecies. Uh, why why are those so important to you? Why is that so important to, to share that? Um 
It's been beautiful for me to listen deeply to the wisdom lineages of so many traditions. Um, I think at first, um, like I said, um, you know, I heard about the Hopi. They were talking about how we, we were a unified heart and then we split into two. And then, you know, this is in their hier hieroglyphs. Um, the elders will point to the hieroglyph and show you the story. And then we split into two for a period of time. And then we come back together into one unified heart. But the ones who don't come back together, who aren't doing the inner work, they dropped off. There's a, there's a pretty intense message if you think about it. Um, the, the Carol are very clear about that. They, they say that, um, there's a great upheaval and that many beings will, uh, will choose. If we're talking about prophecy, it's pretty intense. So I don't want to, um, if, if people haven't explored this topic before, it, um, you know, they're very, very clear. A lot of people are not going to choose to, um, stay on the journey. Um, they're, uh, they did know that a lot of death was coming to be, to be quite clear. Um, they've said that and, um, you know, the Aztec and the Maya, uh, very similar stories. It's all told through their own myths, their own language, but there's a, they're common threads, you know, there's so much confusion about the Aztecs or Mayan story was it the Aztecs or the Mayans? They both have prophecy uh, and timekeeping. And um, they said a little over nine years ago that we entered the underworld, the nine underworlds, the nine stages, nine years. The Aztecs have said that the, you know, and the Carol have said that between the years of 2020 to 2025 are the time of, the greatest turning over, the greatest upheaval. Um, and we're a little bit more than halfway through that. So they, they already do this and they told us these things many, many years ago. I remember sitting with the Caro, um, and, and with peers and talking about, um, 2020. Um, 2020, they said that there would be this global economic and social experience of upheaval. Um, the whole planet would experience it. Um, I've had dreams where they also told me that they knew that, I don't know if I should even talk about this, um, but I'm not going to pinpoint what it is. So I'll just say that they knew that um, there was a great manipulation that would occur at that time. Um, you know, I've heard Joanna Macy, um, who's a deep ecologist, Buddhist practitioner. Uh, she talked about the Shambhala warriors um, and the prophecy of uh, this great weapon and that through our hearts 
we would dismantle that weapon, the Shabala warriors. Um, and that was about this moment in time. Um, those stories are absolutely captivating. And, um, and then I had those uh, Mayans who came and spoke to me about heart awakening and, and my own understanding of what heart awakening means, which we've talked about. Again and again, Spirit has made it very clear to me that what we should be doing with this time is not trying to point a finger in, in the outside world, again, even at the perpetrator, um, even though I agree with people sometimes about my personal opinion about who that is. Um, The perpetrator doesn't scare me. I don't have an entanglement with it, but I do know that there are people out there intentionally creating harm and confusion. Um, so when those beings came to me in the dream that I referenced earlier and they said, uh, humanity has a choice for heart awakening, that's the th- the common threat, they said, I want, they wanted me to understand that all these lineages are talking about heart awakening. And the choice we have right now is to stop being divisive, to stop pointing a finger of blame, to stop getting gripped in the story that's playing out. Not to become passive or unaware of it, but not to primarily focus on our interior, to do our own personal journey of um of heart awakening to take responsibility for that and then eventually get to the point of forgiveness to break free because um when we do that we're pushing human consciousness into a collective field and i don't think we could be any greater um in terms of our of our power um, our activism, our effectiveness <laughs> in this chaos opportunity moment uh, to create what we're going to create going forward. Um, we have all, we all have an, an invitation to make our core Focus right now, and this is what all the elders have said about prophecy, that our focus needs to be um, on our own uh, completion of this heart awakening. That's why I'm so passionate about it. Um, my communication with, with guides um, have done everything to prepare me <laughs> personally to take part in that in my small way. Um, But they are making that invitation to all of us. Uh, And some people obviously have committed a great deal to that um, and are out there sharing it and um, inviting, you know, basically not trying to rescue, but quite simply, if somebody's receptive, they've already made a choice from the guidance of the call of the light within them. So all you're doing is the light speak, the light is speaking to the light. 
if someone else has chosen and decided to be receptive, if somebody feels moved by these stories, this call, this movement, and they want to unify, this heart awakening is really the first stage of unity consciousness. It's not full-on enlightenment. Um, but this first stage is, from my understanding, um, what what's being um, brought to us right now. Um, and that there is, you know, there is some talk. I can feel it. And whether it's true or not isn't important to me, but there is a great deal of light um, coming in. That's just not like, oh, let's all, you know, dance around and be in positive states all the time. Light is coming in and shining on the dark. Doesn't just mean go and bliss out. Maybe, maybe to some degree. Light is shining on the dark. Just like I said, there's a relationship between the light and the dark. It's unveiling. It's unveiling so powerfully and rapidly now in the what we see playing out in the world. And it's doing it in our own personal lives. And that's part of the agony everybody's feel, feeling. And the resistance is because they're up against their own shadow being unveiled. It's coming in incrementally and increasing. And it's gone so far now that uh, my experience and what I'm witnessing and tracking with with clients and just the collective humanity um, is that people are starting to feel the calling um, in the turmoil, which is simply an initiation. It's a chaos point in their own personal lives. So we can do it willfully, you know, um, we can agree to it. We can start finding out how to do it with skill or we can keep resisting. Um, you know, my, uh, my husband's chiropractor sends his clients sometimes and he called, he had this elderly man in his seventies with a really strong Boston accent <laughs> who called us on the phone one day and he said, I'm going crazy. Uh, and he wanted help and he was like, you charge what? <laughs> <laughs> we're like, you know, yeah, um, we'll work with you no matter what. Don't worry about the price. Cause he had never done anything spiritual in his life. And he, and he was like really angry. And he's like, are you guys nut jobs? What is it that you're doing? And we just felt this immediate love for him. He was just so funny. And he said, um, I don't even want to tell you what's happening to me. And he was yelling this whole time. He's so sweet. There was, there was just so much love, um, coming through somehow, <laughs> even though he was yelling at us. Um, and he was like, I keep having this dream where my dead friend who's been dead for 30 years is calling me on the telephone. And I know I must be batshit crazy. I'm going insane. Like, I'm helpless, right? Like, I'm, I'm done for. And, um, he had never, you know, had any experience with, with the, with the, 
with that world, that veiled world, and it, it hit them. It just showed up, you know, and I'm seeing stuff like, you know, in the communities that I'm in, obviously, it's it's really obvious. Everybody, I'm, I'm hanging out with people who feel the call, but there's an increase happening even outside in communities. Um, and we get referrals all the time from people who have absolutely no idea what shamans are. <laughs> Um, who've never experienced any of it. And I am shocked sometimes by the fact that people who've been on the journey for 20, 30 years um, are battling resistance on some of these levels of heart awakening. And sometimes I'll have a phone call from somebody who's never encountered anything spiritual before, and they just have massive receptivity and they dive right in. They don't have all this language. They don't have all the study and books and courses and they're just like, boom, uh, you know, they're, they open wide up to it. Um, so I constantly am, am seeing a confirmation that these prophecies are real. I'm seeing through that lens. Um, I'm seeing people being called. And so the most important piece is like, we can all, um, decide to start doing our inner work, you know, learn shadow work with somebody who's in a lineage or, um, learn the path of purification. Uh, it's called chod in Tibetan Buddhism, you know, dealing with our inner demons, dealing, dealing with these carnal lower astral realms, <laughs> um, these unhealed places we inherited from our ancestors and the suffering that they took on, and it goes back very far um, and unwinding. So that's what we're supposed to be, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Maybe it's a little opinionated to say, but that's what we, we could be doing right now. <laughs> um, but there's so much theater happening it's so easy to be very gripped by it and certainly um i think some people will really feel the that speaking to them of like oh yeah there's hopelessness inside of me and my ego got gripped that hopelessness is my rejection of the of the true of the absolute truth um and so i that's a call to me to, to go on a journey, but um, it's very easy to start getting gripped by the ego and the way the ego wants to take us um, to push away, to alienate one side or much of humanity. You know, so many um, beautiful, loving people in my life will talk about, I love the divine, but I really don't like humanity. <laughs> And um, in the ultimate sense, uh, the awakening may show us um, not that I am awakened, but that everything is God. That's the final stage. So if I have a rejection and an alienation of humanity, which I certainly did, I talked about that early on, even as a child, my parents really were alienated and rejecting of humanity. Um, that kicks us 
hard if we do that. And so that's not just a rejection of humanity, even if we want to believe that it is. It's a confused state about our relationship, our own personal relationship to the light. It is possible to bridge that gap and come back and um, have an incredible amount of patience and gentleness for what humanity is going through, for the confusion, um, for the pain that people have carried for so long, for... Uh, we can be gentle and delicate and patient and still know the power within all of our brothers and sisters, not denying their power, deeply respecting the path that they've chosen, knowing that they're sacred no matter what path they've chosen. Even if a lot of people die, if that part is something that manifests, um, which numerous lineages have talked about, um, that this higher part of themselves already made a choice to experience this and they're receiving something absolutely beautiful. Um, they didn't fail. <laughs> if they died, they, they had an experience. Um, and uh, to the degree that I free myself and awaken, it's not selfish or privileged at all. It makes me more useful and effective to understanding humanity and bringing humanity closer into my heart. Um, it doesn't, it gives me greater responsibility, not more privilege, not less responsibility. Um, but it allows me to also hold it with, in a stable space, not a diluted space. Um, so, uh, that's that's a great responsibility to free ourselves. This is why the Tibetans have the path of the Bodhisattva. This is the same thing with the path of the Pampa Mosaic. My awakening in my interior space is for the service of all beings, for the awakening of all beings. Um, it's not a selfish act. It's an incredibly selfless act. And it's very, very challenging and there are certain passageways that are very narrow and and steep um it's uh, not to be like a martyr but all of us will will make those passageways at some point at what you know down the road whether it's this lifetime or another and um you know it's funny, um, when I heard Joanna Macy, uh, Joanna Macy talking about the Shambhala warriors and how we would transmute the weapons of poison in our open hearts. This is the Bodhisattva path. Um, she was saying, uh, she was describing the journey. You can look it up. There's, there's these uh, beautiful videos of her describing this story. <laughs> this might sound really silly. I don't know how many people have seen the children's cartoon, The Avatar. Have you seen it? So at the end, I'll, I'll ruin it for some people, but at the very end, <laughs> um, 
the Avatar is battling the Fire Lord, and he's the perpetrator. He's the enemy who's created war all over all the lands. Uh, he's the most evil of all. <laughs> and um, and he, the Avatar, this young boy, is supposed to kill this because um, you know he he holds the power of all the elements within him. It's his job to destroy the Fire King. Um, who's created all this war and they go into battle and the child um, decides that instead of killing the fire lord he will take on the wound the dark um, the hate the medicine the dark medicine the um, destructive medicine the poison he will take it right into his whole um, light body and transmute it and heal it and he illuminates it he, he sucks all the power of the of the wound right into his being and then illuminates it um, that path of freedom is not a privilege it's an incredible responsibility that's the bodhisattva that's the heart awakening forgiving the perpetrator is finding how it lives within us, how we've taken on the imprint of it. If you were born in this time and space, chances are, particularly in Western cultures, you've taken on a stronger degree of it. <laughs> and um, when we find it within, we can illuminate it. We can transmute it. It's a really cute cartoon. But that one moment is essentially what we're being asked to do right now. Um, so, uh, I like that image a lot. Um, I think it's a good story uh, for the immense power we have right now, the immense opportunity. Um, we, ha we do have a choice. We can be effective. It's not effective to go into battle with opinions because um, that just creates embroilment and resentment. Um, if I start sharing my own story of seeing my hungry ghost, I'm so much more effective <laughs> um, at speaking to some state of truth within beings who are choosing as well, who feel called. Uh, they'll hear that they will hear that story like in the way that I have seen and they will want to hear more <laughs> and they'll ask to start finding their own source of power. Um, that is so much more effective because if we get back to those states of power, uh, an unveiling, then we cannot be misled. We freedom, sovereign might, sovereignty is the stage that starts opening up very, very quickly. Um, when we, we go on these initiations, um, we regain that, we unveil it. We're not, um, grasping power. We're unveiling what is our true nature. Um, it's already there. So, um, but I'm not inviting anybody into a path of, you know, technique and gaining power 
but I am inviting people to the path of the archetype of death and dismantling. Um, and there, there are risks involved, but in the beginning it's, um, it's, it's very tender and it's very, uh, in comparison to some of the later initiations, it's not so bad, <laughs> but it totally feels like it's dismantling everything we've ever known. Um, when we get to the other side of, of the landscape, um, of that, that first step of forgiveness, at least for that, that story of, um, of the, the powerful who are dominating, um, that's how they are, that's how they lose their power from our interior journey, from our choice. So it's a much more effective form of activism and, um, um, I don't really know if the other forms are working. <laughs> um, they seem to only create more embroilment and more divisiveness and build up. Although I'm very grateful for so many of the voices of people out there speaking truth. It's not that we shouldn't speak truth about um, what's happening, but um, for Myself, I have to be very delicate and careful about how I do that. <laughs> it reminded me of <clears throat> a very interesting video I, I saw this morning uh, when you were speaking about these prophecies and kind of this dark time we're in and uh, the, the Shambhala warriors kind of standing for light. And, uh, and it was interesting because the video is from that part of the world and, and China right now seems to be in another quite strict lockdown and mm -hmm. uh, the video is at night and so there's this darkness and, and there's this drone flying above this this government or police drone and it was just on repeat this message to uh, it was saying don't follow your soul's desire for freedom <laughs> <laughs> And it just seemed it seemed very symbolic as you were talking about this this the, very much being faced with 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 choices that we have of what does that mean our, our own liberation and 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 really really coming to terms with that and 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 trying to to look into that in a way that that does ultimately unite and, and doesn't continue that division and. Uh, yeah, it was very fascinating. Um, it's this this moment is such this moment is such a catalyst, and I do want to say um, that even up until the last moment, people can choose. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're coming up on three hours. Uh, this has been amazing. Wow. Is um, is wonderful. there anything else you you'd like to say before that? Maybe anything we didn't touch on, or anything else. Um, yeah, just that last piece about this moment being a catalyst. Um, the way that it has been explained to me is that everything that's happening is really turning up the volume for this choice to be made. The, the choice of these, this initiation, this global initiation. Um, not to remove the, uh, the, sensitivity to the suffering just you know floating around seeing the highest perspective there 
I've felt the sensitivity to the suffering. I've seen dear ones um, and myself even go through processes with this that have really um, have pushed things deeply um, to the edge. And um, uh, I think it's very important to still hold that broader perspective in the midst of it. Um, in terms of our respect for what our, our human family and brothers or sisters are choosing to do if it's not on the side that we preach about, um, it's there is a higher perspective um, that this, like all the self-sabotage we create, <laughs> Just in the same way, this is just a global unveiling, not just a personal unveiling. And um, its job is, is um, as this catalyst, is to strip that away. And I see that happening. Um, and I want it, you know, in whatever way we can to hold that understanding. Um, that on one level, this is being... Um, this is giving us a, a gift right now. It's really hard to look at it that way, but um, the more I respect, it's taken me so long, the more I really respect um, every single person's individual path. I had so much resistance to doing that, but the, that has been an incredible insight uh, and release of uh, even more states of in internal lie. Um, and, um, yeah, I think that's just what I want to say to leave it at, to leave it at that. Um, there's, there's certainly a reason. So many lineages have talked about it right now. And I think someone told me that there were 36 different lineages that had prophecy about this time, ancient wisdom. So something is definitely unfolding uh, as it should um, in order for us to make a different decision to turn the direction around starting inside first. So... We'll see what happens. <laughs> I'm glad you asked about that. I wasn't really planning on talking about. Um, I really wanted to steer clear of anything political. <laughs> um, but hopefully we've done that in a respectful way. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Persia. This was wonderful. If if anyone is interested in reaching out to you or working with you, how could they go about doing that? Um, again, I've um, I kind of follow a very strange path in terms of staying off the radar. So, um, I think people are welcome to contact me through email if they'd like. My practice is and teaching have been a hundred percent word of mouth. I like doing it that way, even though it's very weird. Um, and against what everybody else teaches about marketing, but I really like doing it that way. And, and it makes the work so rich in terms of the people who show up. Um, but, um, 
but people can reach me at persiagarland at gmail.com. Persia is spelled P-E-R-S-I-A, Garland, G-A-R-L-A-N-D, at Gmail. Wonderful. We'll, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And, uh, and again, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for sharing your story and, and, and the wisdom you, you've learned over these years. You, you, you have a lot of insight and beautiful presence and way of sharing. So, so thank you very much. And, and I think people will really learn a lot from this episode. Good. I'm really glad um, we finally got to work together and meet after all this time. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I hope our paths cross one of these days, maybe back in the U.S. or, or here in the, the Sacred Valley. That, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. You teach in New York sometimes, right? I've, the, the last couple of years, I've been uh, running workshops in, in upstate New York, yeah. So I'll be there again this, um, this July, July, August, something like that. Mm -hmm. I love the work that you're doing. So I'll, I'll oh, thank you. continue to let people know about it. <laughs> Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I'll, I'll let you know when this is out and, and I'm sure we'll connect again soon. Thank you, Jason. All right, everybody. That's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Persia. Uh, it was a pleasure for me to sit down and speak with her. It had been a long time in the making. Uh, I think we had actually probably first connected over a year ago. Uh, so I'm glad it finally happened. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that show. Um, I think she's got a lot of wisdom to share, uh, really drawing on, on a varied background with a lot of different traditions and, and her own direct experience and, and learning. So uh, as always, if you're able to support the show, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really beautiful option. It's a subscription service for as little as a dollar a month. You can sign up. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Uh, that's a really big help to me. Uh, it's always one of my favorite things uh, with this podcast is when I get a notification from them that someone has signed up. Um, that really helps me to, to be able to continue to make these shows, to bring on these guests, to, to produce them, edit them, publish them, all of the things that they go into bringing the show out. So uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, there's also the ability to direct donate via PayPal. Also with the YouTube channel now, you can join. Um, although I think the, the Patreon page offers uh, better benefits. Um, so I think that's it. Like I said, my next guest is going to be with Linda, um, and that should be a really fascinating conversation. And, um, yeah, I think that's it. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. As always, thank you for the support, and I will see you all on the next one. Mm -hmm.